Hello and welcome to Systematically, your weekly theology podcast. I'm John Heaps. I'm speaking to you from sunny Austin, Texas, and I'm here with only one of my co-hosts, Ryan Hemmer. Good morning, Ryan. Morning, John. It's cloudy and cold here in Minneapolis. I'm shocked by that. That's shocking. Uh, we are without Brian or Robin today. Um, the AAR-SBL conflagration in Denver has taken them from us. So um, we are going to talk, just the two of us, about systematic theology, which is, I know is a little on the nose. But uh, we thought that this many episodes in, it might be good to get into the weeds about how it is exactly we think about systematic theology. Um, why it is that on a show called Systematically that I claim every week is your weekly theology podcast, we keep wandering off and talking about philosophy. Um, so we're going to try and spell out some of our own methodological uh, and disciplinary ideas about how all that works. Um, this week, uh, there's the both of us here, but I think last week you probably heard Ryan uh, do an interview all by himself. Uh, and that was because Ryan, in his infinite foresight, uh, put that episode in the can so that he and I could go on vacation. Uh, Which we did. We sure did. And a, a vacation I'm calling medically necessary. It was a medically necessary vacation. <laughs> I had had a cold for like three weeks. I had the stomach flu the week before that. Uh, and I finally feel like an actual living human person now. Not, nothing a little sunburn couldn't cure. That's right. Um, you know, I got through. So we went to my wife's family has a, a really adorable mid-century house on Marco Island, which is about 20 minutes south of Naples, uh, Florida. And... Uh, Ryan and his wife and me and my wife went down. None of us brought our kids, which was just glorious. Thank you, grandparents. Thank you, grandparents, for making that ever so possible. And, uh, you know, we hung out, we cooked, we went to restaurants, and uh, our wives dragged us to the beach uh, where they lay in uh, beach chairs and cooked in the sun. And Ryan and I had those, uh, those camp chairs that have an umbrella attached to them. Uh, and we would rotate like sundials trying to make sure that every inch of us was in the shade the whole time because we are truly indoor kids. And the odd looks we would get from the leathery retirees <laughs> strolling up and down the beach. Ryan noticed something that I, now I can't unsee is that, so we're, we're in this basically retirement community. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a place where former snowbirds now have settled uh, and they bake themselves in the sun day after day, nowhere to be but strolling on the beach. And every single soul looked just miserable. <laughs> they just had the sourest faces on, going from their luxury car to their private beach, just scowling. And I, I, I can't, I still can't make sense of it. It's really stuck in my mental craw. I, I, I can't figure it out. And it wasn't just that, you know, the, the, their faces were, you know, nondescript to sullen, but that just the, the way they walked, sort of dragging their feet, like, you know, you know they, were, they were being led at, uh, at knife point or something. It was, it was uh, quite something. Just broken people. I don't, it was really confusing. <laughs> uh, but no, we had a nice time. We relaxed. We didn't do anything responsible. 
my wife learned how to play. Didn't do cricket. anything too irresponsible. Oh, I said, well, I said, we didn't do anything responsible. Whether things were were positively <laughs> irresponsible, I won't uh, disclose. Um, but no, it was nice. My wife learned to play cribbage, uh, which seems like a good old lady skill. Yeah. So I'm glad she's out ahead of that. Um, no, it was a good time. Uh, we, we introduced Kate, Ryan's wife, to Hot Fuzz, which she'd never seen before, and was disappointed that it wasn't in the same genre as Paul Blart Mall Cop. <laughs> which I don't, I don't know what we said or what it was on the cover of the DVD that made her think that that's where this was going to go. Um, well, we also, uh, speaking of movies we watched, uh, I'm not much of a movie person because I, I have to finish them once I begin them. I don't, I don't like to watch in installments. Uh, and because we're all 30 something parents, we decided we were going to sit down and watch the social network, you know, and boy, we got through about 35 minutes and it was nine fifteen, and everyone was going, well, I suppose it's uh, We're turning it's into a to go to bed. Every one of us. So, uh, so I sat and tried to watch the whole thing, and then uh, I think Annie it turned it off, uh, thinking I was done, and then I couldn't figure out how to turn it back on again. So, oh. well, that's a shame. That's okay. I I have seen it. I just didn't see it that day. That's true. You made a good point about that movie, which is um, that. Uh, Jesse Eisenberg's portrayal of Mark Zuckerberg is really at like two and a half speed purely because of the structure of Sorkin dialogue that if you say it at Mark Zuckerberg's speed, the movie's going to be three and a half hours long. That's right. Um, so it's, you really, you, you get a kind of Zuckerberg on amphetamines feel from that performance. Yep. Um, Which I suppose you could just kind of generalize to Sorkinian, uh, dialogue in general that every character has to talk that quickly just to get the words out and the time allotted that's right it's a certain constraint uh which you know i watched gilmore girls as a high school student i was prepared yes. for that yeah i was prepared for wordy scripts and oblique references um so that was nice and and i've now had a week back and i i've uh, my head is clear and and i have the perspicuity to be able to see that I'm horrifically behind in all of my work. So that's fun. My students are being very patient. They got their exams back eventually. It's, it's all fine. Um, Great. Yeah. So I, I'm more or less caught up. I think I'm going to finish this and then I'm going to try and write some dissertation thoughts. Um, speaking of important academic things, um, sort of where we're headed today is a topic that is at the heart of Ryan's dissertation, um, which is sort of the state of, of speculative or systematic theology uh, in, a, in a pluralistic cultural situation. Um, but, but we're going to work our way there. We're going to kind of back into that. Um, Ryan and I had the experience uh, at Marquette of taking classes with the Methodist systematic theologian D. Stephen Long. Um, and he and I had the same experience in Steve's classes of discovering that 
the Catholic tradition and systematic theology that we had been trained in and the broader uh, Protestant conversation about systematic theology had different expectations about what we were all doing here. Because very often we would find that uh, in a wider, particularly mainline Protestant conversation, there was a lot of argument about which theological doctrines uh, were to be affirmed or not affirmed and why. And only, and it was only belatedly that Ryan and I discovered that this is sort of what was going on because we were coming out of um, a more Catholic frame and specifically uh, a frame set by Lonergan's work, which we're going to get into in a minute, where you don't argue about what doctrines to affirm because uh, you have the good fortune of having a magisterium that just tells you which doctrines to affirm. You were arguing about how to understand them and how to understand them in their interrelation. Um, and so when I would say things like uh, that in principle, there, no, no questions in systematic theology should be a priori foreclosed, um, Steve would often think that what I was saying is that every doctrine should always be open to negotiation at all times, which is precisely not what I was saying. Uh, and, but the, the value of this, though it was frustrating at the time, um, the value of the, the sort of clash of these two different ways of framing systematic theology was that it really helped Ryan and I get clear on what it is we think the task of the systematic theologian is uh, and what the place of theological speculation is in the wider work of doing theology, at least uh, in the sort of Catholic context that we've found ourselves in. Um, and we, we've done this to the extent that we're, we're both sort of writing dissertations um, that have a foot in this question. Um, and because Ryan's foot is a little bit deeper in it, uh, I was going to ask him, he's written some, uh, done some research and, and written some on sort of the history of uh, how we got to where we are in terms of how systematic theology is thought of and how it's done. And so I was hoping he'd sort of walk us through how he thinks about the development there. Um, so Ryan, you mind jumping in on that? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's an odd thing because uh, we always used to joke <clears throat> at, uh, when we were in, uh, in coursework and things at Marquette that um, you know, we'd, we'd have this, this uh, classical structure to uh, our curricular um, requirements. So we had, we had uh, Judaism and Christianity and antiquity, which we'd say, well, that's the, the, the method for, for that discourse is uh, it's everything that you study up to the Didache. <laughs> uh, and anything after that is historical theology. Uh, and historical theology is a methodology by which you study everything from the Didache to, let's say, Leo Thirteenth, <laughs> And then <laughs> systematic theology is everything after you know, Leo. And so we, we said, you know, the main, the main difference, what, what distinguishes one subfield of theology for, from another is not the um, objects of its inquiry necessarily or the methods by which it conducts its work, but just a, a chronological distinction that we're, we're all really historians or uh, folks who are interested in uh, the historical constitution of the meaning of things 
And so we mark ourselves off one from another by the period in which we study. And this was, this was kind of a, a, a joke, but, um, but it winds up really pretty accurately describing uh, a lot of the lay of the land, um, especially in the last century, um, that there's been a, a real emphasis placed on history, on development, on um, recovering the original contexts in which texts were written, trying to interpret them in light of those contexts, trying to trace patterns of development through a particular age. And this is all, to my mind, um, quite good. Um, this, is, this is, in Catholic world, the, the result of um, what, was, what was called the Rezor Small, um, a, a movement in the early 20th century that sort of has its roots in some late 19th century histories of, of doctrine that really tried to return to the sources, return to the main texts. Um, and uh, this was a maneuver, this was a, uh, a decision made to pursue this course because so many of the luminaries of this period, uh, folks that would be familiar to anyone who studied 20th century theology, you know, Congar, uh, et cetera, is that they, they all sort of had this common insight that what was then called speculative theology had kind of gone too far. Um, it had cut the theologians and theological communities off from uh, the, the sources of their faith. And so uh, they, they sought a kind of transformation of what was once called positive theology. Uh, transforming it specifically through the introduction of modern historiographical and historical critical methods. Can you, um, can you and say it's, something a little bit about um, what did, if you were a, a student in theology uh, around the turn of the 20th century, what did your formation in speculative theology look like? Well, I mean, I think one thing to remember is, of course, is that that training was was um, overwhelmingly a, a, a seminary setting, right? Um, the at least in the Catholic world, you know, academics was was largely a clerical endeavor. There's there's sort of notable exceptions, um, but the the really notable ones don't pop up until much later, you know, Maritain and others. Um, so what you what you would have gotten from you know, really probably the, the 17th century onward is uh, what, what gets despairingly called the, the manualist tradition, where um, scriptural, patristic, medieval sources are not um, read and studied, but distilled and presented in, in theses, uh, in which um, you, f you follow the course of a textbook um, that's written in order to uh, allow you to assimilate what the answers to all the questions are and then um, and then sort of deductivist or rationalist arguments for why those are the answers yeah uh and 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 a and a real underemphasis in fact on the question so this is this is a thing that changes in the in the modern period from the high medieval one is you you shift from the questio the question as the sort of basic unit of pedagogical structure um, 
from the sentence commentary tradition through the various medieval sumai uh, into the thesis, right? So, so you're not asking a question and then pursuing an answer. You're, you're just stating what the answer is. And then, as you say, working through the deductive steps that would allow you to uh, most rigorously assert that answer. And so sometimes it was referred to as conclusions theology. Exactly. This is a, I think, I think there's a Johannes Bomer's uh, term for it is con- conclusions theology. Um, so this is, this was very much the, the educational uh, reforms that follow from, you know, in the aftermath of the Protestant Reformation um, and, and into the restructuring of seminary life after Trent. Um, so, so, uh, what in, in early and mid 20th century, the, the Nouvelle Théologie and the Résorcement and all these folks are reacting against that kind of uh, uh, method that often got called, quote unquote, speculative theology. So this, this basic distinction between positive and speculative theology, I mean, it's, it goes back to at least the 16th century and is a, is a sort of predominant way of... Um, clarifying the two different approaches, the two different methods that sort of interact in the course of, of uh, your, your seminary formation and training. So you would often have, um, you know, in your textbook, you would have uh, the positive parts, which would sort of trot out all of the, the kind of proof texts that you need from the Bible and from the fathers and from St. Thomas. Um, and then you would have the sort of speculative or, or systematic Part of the text, which would pivot from um, these these the sort of aggregating of these sources to the the sort of synthetic interpretation of them in terms of thesis. Uh, so this is a sort of standard way of organizing a, a theological textbook. Um, but because the the historiographical method in, in positive theology was so well non-existent. Um, in, in the 20th century, there's a real transformation of positive theology to, to make of it a real historical theological science, um, to use modern methods of historiographical analysis. And this, this includes also uh, not just the recovery of the fathers, but the, the Bible as well. Uh, so you get um, major movements in, in Catholic scripture study that, that are arguing for the inclusion of um, critical methodologies in, in the interpretation of scripture. And all these things are, of course, very controversial. They, they um, get even some papal pushback initially. Um, but at Vatican II, we get, we get a kind of ratification of almost all of these developments uh, flowing from the Resourcement. But what you get as a kind of um, consequence is that the kind of one-sided emphasis on positive theology and on history uh, leading to and flowing from the council leads to a kind of uh, forgetting of speculative theology. And so you, you, you can browse a, a theological bookstore today and you'll, you'll just find so many texts that are either one-sidedly historical and they're trying to recover um, what what a particular figure said or what a particular movement meant, um, or they're practical, right? They're trying to utilize uh, Christian theological resources in order to address some contemporaneous practical problem. 
Um, but what's often missing is, uh, is, a, is speculative theological arguments. Um, arguments that aren't subordinated either to uh, the historical context in which the arguments merge or to the practical context in which they might uh, have something to say, but are really just trying to get at the meaning uh, of a set of doctrines, the meaning of a set of ideas for their own sake, uh, for no other end than simply understanding them. Uh, and so, you know, there, there's uh, ecclesial reasons for why speculative theology uh, has been underemphasized in the, the 20th and 21st century. Uh, but there's also uh, sort of broader cultural trends against what we might call speculative or systematic thinking in general. Which doesn't mean uh, that the impulse to it has died, right? So even, no, when, you read, no. even when you read De Lubach, you find the arrangement both of um, statements of, of doctrinal assertion or of historical fact or of textual development or any of these things. <clears throat> You'll find them are sort of arranged in such a way that they are suggesting some kind of speculative conclusion. Um, and so much of, of scholarship on De Lubach in the last 30 years is trying to say directly what de Lubach so often only said by implication or by gesture. Um, And also you have, I think, uh, the development of sort of in the wake of de Lubach and and Balthazar too, um, a a style of doing what gets called systematic theology and not inappropriately. So I don't think um, where one uh, sort of unfolds lines of implication that, that emerge from the conjunction of doctrinal statements. Uh, and so you'll, you'll have, uh, I see this genre most often at, at conferences, uh, you know, papers that, that don't move into a kind of distinctly speculative or philosophical or even particularly theoretical mode at any point, um, but in fine-grained detail sort of unfold the sort of origami crane of doctrinal assertion to show, to try and gesture at its inner logic, right? So instead of asserting a kind of theoretical structure that stands on its own, um, one tries to sort of performatively demonstrate the logic that's controlling it through the enunciation of the very elements of the various elements of, of doctrines, um, which is sort of all well and good, uh, but it does it does seem like there's a kind of um, that that positive theology is sort of being sucked by a vacuum in that direction, right? That there's still a, a systematic and speculative impulse that these modes of ressourcement and other kinds of positive theology um, are, are addressing, seems to me sort of by the way, um, or by implication or by gesture, uh, and, and the sort of habits and practices of directly addressing it have mostly fallen to, to I mean, we can get into this a little bit, um, a sort of a small uh, but vocal cadre of of neo neo scholastics um, who yeah, yeah, who that's right. who want to recover um, sort of heroes of the the sort of high speculative um, moment of the the Leonine project, um, and you know, and so you can read sixty five page articles by Reinhard Hütter um, where he's 
where he's really going for it um, in, in a Thomist mode. Um, but this is not, you know, if you go to the CTSA or C- to CTS or something, this is not the, the sort of mainstream theological conversation uh, to, to any large extent. Hey, we had upwards of 10 people that came to our CTSA panel on speculative <laughs> and, and four of them, I think, thought they were getting something rather different. <laughs> well, I mean, that's, I mean, that's maybe not a bad example, right? So I, I put together a panel for CTSA last year um, where we and were addressing some of the questions we're bringing up here, right? Where we were talking about grace uh, and culture and pluralism. And, uh, you know, when you put those topics together in the, in the wider theological conversation, you tend to get, like Ryan was saying, sort of practical considerations, right? Of how does the theologian proceed um, in classrooms and institutions and ecclesial settings marked by cultural pluralism, by a multiplicity of cultural horizons coming together? And how is one to be sensitive and how is one to be um, considerate of the sort of uh, multivalent element of the social situation in which theology is done? And again, good, important uh, all of which I think I'm glad that there are people out there asking and answering those questions. Uh, the panel that we put together was like um, directly speculative considerations of, in my case, uh, how is God's agency found in cultural difference? Ann Carpenter put together a paper on like, how is tradition possible at all? Uh, <laughs> and then Ryan did a, a piece on what we'll talk about later, speculative pluralism. And yeah, you know, there were some people who'd wandered in uh, thinking they were going to get a kind of practicum on how to do theology of grace in a, uh, a culturally pluralist society. And, and they, what they got were a bunch of philosophical distinctions, which is maybe how lots of people feel when they listen to our podcast. Well, there, there's a theme there, I think. <laughs> so anyway, I stopped you. No, uh, no, no, no. That's good. Um, the, the, the only thing I, want, I would, you know, would want to add is to simply to say that um, you know this this tradition or what we what we're calling speculative theology i mean it it has its origins in you know patristic contemplative theoria you know it's it it has its origins in mystical prayer and spirituality so it's it's not as if this is like a foreign sort of harnackian greek imposition on the pure gospel um you know, this is a, it's, it's something that grows organically out of uh, Christian self-reflection and meditation. Uh, and, you know, perhaps it's, it's appropriate that the, the universities that grow out of the monastic schools um, become, in the Middle Ages, the sort of home for this kind of thinking. Uh, but again, it's not, it's not something that is uh, Im- imported from some foreign source, but it is a, it's an organic development within Christian self-understanding itself. Um, but it, but I, I, I suppose it's also worth mentioning that the, the ecclesial trends away from speculative theology that we've witnessed over the last century, um, they have... Secular uh, counterparts, trends in 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 the world, the, the world at large, that uh, have moved away from speculative thinking, not just in theology, but but um, sort of civilization wide. So, in in her book, uh, relatively new book, God, Sexuality, and the Self, Sarah Coakley sort of 
describes these, what she calls modern forms of resistance to speculative or systematic thinking under these sort of three broad trends. So she'll talk about um, a kind of critique of ontotheology flowing from uh, especially Heidegger and then um, some of the post-structuralist criticisms of their structuralist teachers uh, that, that are suspicious of system writ large, right? And especially suspicious of system as it relates to, in, in a theoretical or, or, or theological frame, to transcendence. And so uh, Jean-Luc Marion, famously, but uh, by no means is he alone in this, um, have sort of uh, brought this kind of apophatic critique to bear on theological language and have really called into question quite radically the the very possibility of, of systematic or speculative theology, um, charging that it that it at its root it's ontotheological and thereby idolatrous. So that's that's sort of one broad trend. But then you also have um, sort of Marxist critiques, broadly Marxist critiques of hegemony that are really um, that are convinced that there's a kind of um, moral insidiousness that's that's built within any kind of systematic structure that the system exists largely to um, perpetuate itself on its others and to dominate and then you have a kind of psychoanalytical feminist critique uh, especially a kind of lacanian critique that sort of h- highlights the degree to which speculative thinking is a kind of phallocentric enterprise and so um, is always covering over or masking uh, the kind of subterranean feminine materials that are, are um, not being allowed to become explicit in thought. Uh, and so she sees these three trends as all, they're all very different from one another, but they all kind of converge on this central suspicion that systematic theology or speculative thinking as a whole um, is is if it's possible it's certainly not something you should try to promote <laughs> uh it's it it has a kind of um a, a kind of evil really at its heart that manifests itself in in really deleterious ways in society um which is which is a lot more severe i should say than the ecclesial critique if we can even call it that it's more of an, a a trend within theology um away from speculative thinking. But in society as a whole, I think you see a, a much more intentional and explicit criticism of system. Well, and, and I think that owes to a, uh, a genuine development uh, in philosophical understanding, um, which is to say uh, there's still being worked out the way in which um, the sort of intellectual power of theoretical explanatory modes of inquiry and of discourse uh, either jive or don't with historical consciousness. Um, And so the the sort of achievement of Aristotle to move, um, to move uh, accounts of reality away from the sort of uh, universalizing of descriptive terms 
right? So that uh, the soul is in motion and also, uh, but also is very, must be very sort of fine enough to be in the body. And so it must be like fire, which is both very fine and in motion, right? Uh, to move away from that to an explanation uh, in terms of the intelligible relationships of dependence uh, and and of causality is like a real advance. Um, yeah. I'm, you know, I'm teaching the, the example comes to mind because I'm teaching ancient philosophy to seminarians right now, and it's uh, it's kind of a bummer to like do the chapters on Aristotle, read through the De Anima, and then. And then after that, have to go back to Frederick Copleston's account of the Epicureans and the Stoics and stuff. <laughs> we just like, don't care that much about speculative accounts of reality, so long yeah. as like you you live a good, noble Roman life. Um, it's a it's a bummer because my students are like, "Wait, this doesn't make any sense." And all I can say is, "Yeah, you're you're right. Uh, they just weren't <laughs> that worried about it." Um, so there's a real development that happens there. Uh, but part of what you run up against is, you know, you get, you get what, what now, because they're quite tired, seem like facile critiques, but, but aren't said for nothing, um, of Aristotelian and other causal or metaphysical or theoretical accounts as being static and not dynamic, right? Um, now, and against which Aristotelians all gripe. Right, because like the beginning of this whole thing is operation. Right, the whole the whole point here is that there's movement and change. If there wasn't, we wouldn't need any of these theoretical categories. Okay, fair enough. Um, but the the thing about these explanatory accounts is is that once be, because they proceed by a kind of logico metaphysical parallel, um, where where logical relationships of dependence, uh, where they are where they are both understood and also affirmed to be the case are taken to be real relationships of dependence. Uh, they have the kind of apparent necessity and universality and fixity that come with logical inference. Um, and when you become historically conscious, and you come to see that the, the world that's being investigated and in which you are finding these relationships of dependence and causation and apparent necessity and universality are themselves the product of acts of human freedom and acts of human meaning. Uh, and that when you, if you don't advert to their source in human freedom and human acts of meaning, uh, you can sort of trick yourself into believing that they're universal and necessary. Um, well, then you have, good, you have good reason to become suspicious about sort of theoretical explanation as a whole, right? If, if the structures that are being discovered and called universal and necessary and fixed are the product of acts of human freedom and acts of human meaning, then it's, it's not too far a jump to engage in the kinds of Marxist or Lacanian um, or even if you want to, you know, trace it back to voluntarism, onto theological criticisms of system and theory and um, and metaphysics. So that there's a there's a real development. I mean, right? There's a there's a real insight into the way in which the human world, as human, is both mediated but also constituted by meaning that puts metaphysical. Uh, 
sort of logical, metaphysical, and theoretical systematic accounts of reality into crisis. Um, and so the crisis, it seems to me, is uh, legitimate. My concern often in the conversation, and part of why we wanted to talk about this, and why, Ryan, I think your project is so good, is that um, on the, there's sort of two, two wide avenues of response. And the first avenue is a defensiveness that continues to point to the logico-metaphysical necessity, right? And says, well, look, if you recognize the, the sort of lines of implication here, you are bound and constrained by reason to affirm the relationship between potency and act, for example, or, you know, or whatever it is, right? Whatever metaphysics you want to double down on. And the other wide avenue that's available to you is um, to elide your suspicious questions about system and theory and their origins in human acts of freedom and human acts of meaning making um, with successfully investigated and affirmed suspicious conclusions about those, right? That because they originate in human acts of freedom and a human acts of meaning, therefore they're capricious exercises of power. Um, and so the entirety of the, of the academic project becomes uh, an archaeology of power um, to allude not very subtly to Foucault and others. Um, but 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 it seems to me that and, and in some cases right that's just obviously the case i mean there's there's cases where those those criticisms are utterly valid and and perfectly well supported um but there can also be a temptation right it's a kind of wide avenue where because that's true of the entire world of human living that it's mediated and constituted by meaning um that after a while, you can just elide the justification, the, the sort of warrantedness of your suspicious questions with already knowing the answer. Yep. Um, so I, I'm, I'm curious then. So, so is there a future for speculative theology? Well, I, you know, I, I, I think that you, you, can, you can sort of run the, run the conclusions one of two ways. Um, because, because for my money, what's what's really at odds uh, is a are, are two radically dis, uh, distinct accounts of culture, history, tradition. You can plug and chug a lot of terms there, um, but but centrally, you're talking about the the meaningfulness of the human world and whether that meaning is uh, a permanent achievement that stands perennially and forever. Or uh, if distinct contexts of meaning making yield distinct traditions, distinct cultures, distinct histories, etc. Now, you you have one tendency that wants to say um, the the systematic or speculative theological project is predicated and built upon a, a kind of cultural, historical, traditional unity. And that in the absence of that unity, you simply cannot have the, the speculative or systematic project. It recognizes that in the modern and postmodern period, there, there has been a kind of uh, disintegration of that cultural unity. And so the, the project then becomes one of trying to rebuild, reconstitute, repristinate that cultural unity. Uh, I mean, you see this reflected at even 
kind of benign way, I would say, in, in uh, you know, e- even in a very early programmatic encyclical like Attorney Patris, where, you know, it's not just that um, making recommendations that maybe St. Thomas has some answers to modern rationalism and skepticism, but that society is, in, is put in danger. Culture is, has been uh, put in danger by these trends. And so we need to recover St. Thomas, not just to sort of um, ha- have a sure footing for the intellectual project, but to save civilization. Right? Now, you also have uh, uh, the kind of tendency that you're really talking about, which re- has the same insight, coincidentally, that, uh, that what the modern period is largely characterized by is the historical coming to consciousness of the utter precariousness and contingency of human meaning, and then concludes from that that because there can't be any kind of normative cultural structure, by implication, there cannot be any kind of speculative, systematic, explanatory, theoretical praxis. And so they, they both, both the conservatives and the revisionists have the same sort of organizing insight, but, but then take on different charters from that, either to try to rebuild cultural unity through repristination or to simply abandon theory as a whole uh, in favor of deconstruction, pragmatism, you know, you pick, pick your poison. But, um, but I think there's a, a, a third way, right? And the third way is to actually do the work of thinking through what it would mean to do theoretical kinds of work and speculative kinds of thinking with the understanding that the nest of meanings that, that you're doing the mediation with are themselves the contingent uh, cumulative process of, of human acts of freedom and as a result are subject to change. And sometimes that change is good, and sometimes that change is bad. Uh, cultures rise and cultures fall, usually under the momentum of their own freedom. And so uh, it, it requires a pretty, I think, radical rethinking and reframing of speculative theology as an example of theoretical thinking. But, but I, I would say that it doesn't render it impossible. Um, and so the, I, the suspicious question does not simply because it's ask yield uh, a negative answer. So um, <clears throat> I want to return to our misunderstanding in Steve Long's classes um, because there's a, there's a distinction at work uh, that I think is the sort of kernel, uh, is the sort of seed from which this can grow, right? And the, the distinction is a distinction between dogma, doctrines, and systematic or speculative understanding. Um, can, you, can you walk us through a little bit? So, so Lonergan, in a context uh, framed by Attorney Patras and, and by, by Vatican I more broadly, um, is really ma- able to make something out of um, that distinction, both in, in Grace and Freedom and also in the introduction to uh, Triune God Systematics. Can you, can you give us sort of, um, before we get into the problem of, of a, a pluralist or quote-unquote postmodern context for speculative thought, how does Lonergan proceed in a, in a sort of mid-20th century mode in a kind of transitional way 
to do speculative theology. So, you know, Lonergan, especially throughout the the 40s uh, and into the 50s when he moved to Rome, you know, he was he was teaching seminarians. And so following the same course of textbook construction and pedagogy that had, um, you know, long since become the standard practice in Catholic seminaries. And uh, they would usually follow the same broad pattern of distinction that I had, had talked about earlier between positive and speculative. So um, what, he, what he would often do is use whatever textbook uh, was the flavor of the day at, at the seminary for the positive parts. So, uh, you know, he would have the students read about uh, the, the, all the relevant passages from scripture and the fathers and stuff from the textbook. And then he would write um, a supplement uh, where he actually tried to work out a speculative articulation of the doctrine or doctrines in question, not for the purpose of securing those doctrines sort of in the order of existence, but uh, for the purpose of understanding what in the world they might mean and how the, the apparent conjunction of, of doctrines it seems often to yield all of these these ambigua that uh, if left sort of unanalyzed and untreated could in fact lead to doubt. Um, and so I think, I think Lonergan often sees speculative theology as a way of pursuing understanding so that difficulties don't metastasize. And so he, he did this um, in most of the courses that he taught, uh, the doctrine of grace, Trinity, Christology, um, those were kind of his main three. Uh, and so he, he would work out um, long textbook-length treatments of the development of these doctrines, and then he would shift gears into a formally speculative mode where he's not asking, what is the doctrine, um, but, uh, or is the doctrine true, but rather, what does it mean? Uh, how is it so? Um, how might we understand the mystery that is um, affirmed within the doctrine in a way that meets the cultural and intellectual horizon of our, of our age? And so he took warrant from Vatican I, from De Filius, which uh, argued that there can be, with divine aid, uh, some imperfect, hypothetical, and yet highly fruitful understanding of the nexus of mysteries that are made known through divine revelation. So for that, that little passage in, I can't remember which chapter it is in De Filius, so toward, toward the beginning of the text, um, he took as a kind of charter for speculative theology that he saw that there is mag magisterial um, warrant for committing oneself to the practice of trying to understand what one believes to be the case. And so he very much saw speculative or systematic theology as that hypothetical, revisable, analogical, uh, and imperfect effort to use uh, reason, philosophy, natural and supernatural analogies in order to shed some light on the, the difficulties of, of understanding that are often embedded in one's own affirmation of a doctrine. So, for example, 
when when one says the creed, right, and the Father and the Son are affirmed to be consubstantial on the basis of their shared divine nature, uh, and and the creed tells us early on that that divine nature uh, has omnipotence in order for God to be the maker of all things, right? And so if God's going to have that omnipotence, God also has to be infinite, and 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 um, but also that the difference between the Father and the Son is that the Son is begotten from the Father, or in the later technical language, right, proceeds from the Father. Well, hold on. How is it that in an infinite God, there can be process? That, that would be a question for understanding, right? You, yep. you begin from your affirmation of um, dogmatic assertion, right? That the Father and the Son are consubstantial, and that the nature that they share is a divine nature, um, but also that there's, that there's a difference between them and the difference is one of begetting or of, of procession. Those are all doctrinal assertions. And you can go and you can, um, you know, you can read the scriptural and patristic and medieval um, sources in which the church again and again and again affirms all these things. And so the inquiry begins from your judgment uh, on the basis of the authority of the church that these are true. And systematic theology begins when you ask that question for understanding about how these doctrines in their conjunction can be true. How is it that there can be procession in God? And that, obviously, if you know the Summa, um, is something Lonergan learned from, as he said, reaching up to the mind of Thomas Aquinas. Um, Okay, but that much, at least uh, insofar as he learned it from Thomas, still proceeds according to a kind of metaphysical, theoretical, sort of not in the modern sense, historically conscious way of thinking about the speculative task. Um, So Ryan, you've been doing some work on this. Uh, How and can that kind of task be shifted uh, into a a historically conscious, um, culturally pluralistic horizon? Uh, Lonergan made some, some headway on this. Bob Doran's made some headway, but I think you're sort of really you're pushing it. So where, where are you pushing it? So um, if, you, if you read the first sentence of uh, Method and Theology, uh, Lonergan famously writes that um, a theology, and he's, he's going to use the indefinite article for all of these terms, a theology mediates between uh, a cultural matrix, again, a cultural matrix, and the significance and role of a religion within that matrix. And he goes on to say that uh, culture used to be conceived as the kind of social manifestation of the human soul, something that was normative, something that uh, was unchanging, that one was either cultured or one was not, and insofar as one was cultured, um, one's habits of, of Belonging and being and thinking were the same, and so you had uh, you you had the uh, the cultured and the barbarians, right? Um, but he says now we recognize uh, that that was a mistake. That was not uh, an, an accurate understanding of what culture is. That a culture is in fact a set of meanings and values that organize a shared life. And in as much as there are discrete sets of meanings and values, there are distinct ways of living and thereby distinct cultures. So he takes that to be the basic situation of theology. 
that theology is confronted with the fact not just of the, the impermanence of culture over time, but the multiplicity of cultures, even with synchronically in a, in a particular moment or age. That you have, a, you have the problem of history uh, in terms of succession, but you also have the problem of history in terms of the contemporaneous plurality of human living. And what theology has to do, he says, is mediate the meaning of, re- of a religion in all of these different nests, all these different contexts of meaning. So uh, what I am saying is that speculative theology, specifically in this frame, he's, ta- he's talking about theology as a whole, so this is a, a sort of sub-differentiation of that. What speculative theology has as its basic task is a, is a kind of mediation that moves from the doctrinal, the, the explicit doctrinal sort of nexus of a religion to the concrete moral, existential, and intellectual horizon of its cultural situation with the understanding that there's a bunch of different intellectual horizons coordinated with different uh, cultural situations. And so there's going to be, as a kind of structural necessity, a plurality of speculative theologies. Um, that each speculative theologian is sort of responsible uh, for meeting the, the intellectual and moral and existential conditions of his or her own time, but with the recognition that, uh, that that's a shared task across cultural situations. So there's going to be a pluralism of speculative theologies that are coordinated both by a pluralism of cultural situations and a pluralism of speculative theologians. And so the and so it, the thing that I like about this is that it it's um, the relationship between the the speculative theologies generated in different cultural contexts and horizons is going to be analogical. Yes. Right. So it's going to be different according to the differences uh, that shape and constitute the horizons, but it is going to be the same insofar as it's um, the same kind of cognitive function, right? It's the same, it's the same basic task. Um, I always go back to, to Lonergan's line and insight about how, um, you know, uh, I'm now going to forget his phrasing of it, but, but basically that, that, um, differences suggest a differential, right? Yes. Um, that, that there that the unity doesn't need to be at the level of a kind of uh, perfect conformity, but that there can be a kind of complementarity, um, and in this case, the complementarity is at the level of cognitive function. That's right. Um, even if materially, they're they're very very different. Um, but now, now I think the the there's a further piece to it, which is dialectical, that responds to that uh, analogical similarity and dissimilarity by trying to actually um, get at the particular the particular kinds of relationship that obtain between distinct kinds of speculative theology. Because you know, it's it's not just saying, oh, every, everyone's doing their own thing and it's fine. If there's really an analogical resemblance there, then there's a way of actually hashing out 
the nature of the relation in dialectical terms that you may, you may have complementary perspectives. You may have uh, sort of genetic perspectives, right? That are, that follow upon one another in a kind of um, integral succession. Uh, but you can also have, have contrary relations in which there's a, there's a creative tension uh, between these theologies. They're not opposites, but they kind of pull in, in opposite directions. And then you, you can just have like formally contradictory relations in which uh, the response is going to have to be yes to one and no to the other. But the, the important thing to note, though, is that in saying no to a speculative theology, as calling that theology sort of inadequate, one isn't making a charge of heresy, hmm. right? Because speculative theology is, is a, a process that takes place within the order of understanding and not within the order of existence, as long as it says speculative failures are distinct from heresies, right? It's wagering a hypothesis, doing the work and finding out that there was something wrong with the hypothesis. It didn't bear out what you thought it was going to bear out. Um, and so you try again. But because, but because uh, speculation is subsequent to doctrinal affirmation, uh, one is not trying to secure the doctrines, one is trying to understand them. And so failures to understand are, are different from failures to secure. And, and so for that reason, uh, a, a retrieval of speculative theological inquiry is not, uh, should not be understood as an effort to sort of crowd the resourcement retrieval of positive theology back out of the theological task. But no. then, in fact, without the work of resourcement positive theology, a, a, a contemporary, a, a sort of adequately contemporary speculative theology can't even begin. Or it begins no, I mean, and it's, naively. It's really that work that uh, brought historical consciousness into the Catholic mainstream. And so without it, I mean, we, we're, we're still stuck in a deductivist kind of, of pure logical frame that doesn't, uh, doesn't take cognizance of the contingency and development of human meanings in history. Well, I think that's probably <clears throat> as good a place uh, as any to, to pump the brakes unless you had anything you wanted to, to add or make sure you mentioned before we wrap up. I've got like three more chapters I could run through here. <laughs> Maybe we'll save them for another day. I should probably um, write them first, though. Well, that's the, that's the thing, too. Um, we, we had some, some topically fitting treasures old and new. Ryan, can I, can I have you uh, rattle through those for us? Yeah, so, um, so we talked about, uh, earlier in this episode, we talked about, um, John mentioned Lonergan's uh, The Triune God Systematics. And this was a, a textbook Lonergan wrote when he was teaching Trinity um, at the Greg uh, in Rome. And um, this, this really highlights the distinction between doctrines and, and systematics that we've been talking about. But he wrote, he wrote two volumes of his Trinity textbook. The first one he calls The Triune God Doctrines which is um, the, the, the sort of development of Trinitarian theology and specifically looking to the development for the meaning of the doctrine. And so it very much follows the, the order of discovery. Um, but then there's a, a, a sort of part two, which takes the synthetic systematic perspective uh, that really is a response to John's question earlier, how can there be procession in a perfectly simple God? and works then systematically and speculatively through an analogy for that perfectly simple procession and 
uh, walks through how that analogy unfolds into uh, a speculative account of relations and of persons and of mission. So that's, that's sort of Lonergan's classic traditional systematic treatment. There's some pretty revolutionary things in there, but um, it's in its form a very traditional speculative text. Um, now, Bob Doran, uh, a teacher of John and I and one of the sort of premier interpreters of Lonergan's work, in 2012 released the first of what I believe will be three volumes called uh, The Trinity in History. And that text is also a speculative systematic treatment of the Trinity that in a certain respect ends where, or begins where Lonergan and uh, St. Thomas end. So it's, tr- it's trying to remain theoretical, remain speculative, remain formally explanatory, but shift the sort of beginning of system, uh, systematics of the Trinity to the missions. So beginning with the, the processions as they come to us in history. And so treating of, of the communication, the self-communication of God in history as the beginning of systematic theology. So it's, it's a very much a model of the kind of third way that we've been sort of dancing around here uh, that is working within a very specific tradition of reflection, a sort of Augustinian, Thomist, Lonerganian tradition. But um, following through that tradition uh, on all of the insights that have accrued about history and culture and the contingency of human meaning and the constitution of human worlds. So it's a, it's a, it's a really challenging, really highly technical and really, really tremendous work um, that I think is suggestive of, of a lot of areas of research that um, I, I'm doing a little piece of, John's sort of doing little bits and pieces of. And so all of us are kind of picking up threads that, uh, uh, haven't haven't quite been pulled all the way uh, in Bob's work. That's great. Thanks, Ryan. Um, well, that's our show. Thanks for listening. Uh, if you have questions or comments or things you want to add to the conversation, you can find us on Twitter at SystematicPod. Uh, if you want to send us an email, if there's something you'd like us to talk about um, or uh, something you'd like to berate us for, you can send us an email systematically podcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can find us on Apple podcasts and on SoundCloud. If you go on Apple podcasts, do us a favor, uh, make sure you subscribe for one, but also, you know, we've had 10 reviews for like weeks and weeks and weeks. And I'd love to see that go up to like 20. So if you could leave us a, a star rating, it'd be really awesome if you left a short comment, uh, giving people some sense of what they're getting into if they download this podcast. We'd really appreciate it. It would help people find the show. Um, as always, our intro and outro music is track 14 off of Ghost 2 by Nine Inch Nails. Thank you, Trent Reznor, for your Creative Commons license. Um, we'll be back next week. And as always, be intelligent. Thanks. Bye.